0: This podcast is for investment professionals only. The information and views expressed, including any reference to specific investments, does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. Past performance is not a guide to
1: future performance, and the value of an investment may fall as well as rise.
2: Welcome to Taking Stock, hosted by Finley Park. Happy New Year and welcome to the first podcast from Finley Park. My name is Simon Pryke. I'm CEO at Finley Park. And I'm here with Anthony Kingsley, our Chief Investment Officer. We're going to be talking about the American Fund, what's happened in the last year, and what we think might happen in the year ahead. Simon,
3: hi. Uh, well, here we are back in the office, January the 10th, and... Um uh, about to record our first podcast.
2: Yeah, leaping into the 21st century somewhat belatedly. I, I think, Anthony, under pressure from our, our teenage kids to uh, upgrade from newsletter to podcast because that's all they listen to these days.
3: Exactly. So well, obviously we listen to a lot of podcasts as well, but but doing one is rather different. Um, I have no idea how this is going to go. I've got no idea if anyone's going to be uh, interested in, in, in listening to us, but um, um, it, it's certainly worth worth giving it a go.
2: Well, I've always said you've got a face for radio, Anthony, so I'm sure it's (laughs) going to go absolutely fine. Um, So 2021 was a strange kind of year, wasn't it? We began that first quarter with a huge amount of speculation in the market. Yeah, it was really
3: strange. I mean, I I do recall uh, there were days where I just thought to myself, what is going on? Um, Stocks that were losing money, uh, space space exploration stocks, these SPACs, these special vehicles, um, companies with no profits, low price stocks, were leading the market.
2: Well, I remember we put a chart in our Q1 newsletter just showing how stocks that had strong pricing power seemed to have underperformed for a few months. And we've sort of seen that kind of reverse the last few months as some of those kind of companies have done a bit better. And we tend to invest in companies that have strong pricing power,
3: consistent free cash flow, great returns on capital. Um, and Uh, These companies really were uh, rather ignored in the first quarter, but actually that gave us opportunities to add and buy. um, And many of those stocks performed really well in the following nine
2: months. And the key with these kind of companies is we're looking for sustainability, isn't it? We're looking for these attributes that can be sustained over many years. uh, And that's where this kind of compound return in the fund really comes from. Absolutely. We're looking for sustainable businesses uh,
3: that can continue to compound over a really long period of time. So, Simon, what's the plan for today?
2: It's a good question. Uh, so the next stage, Anthony, I'm going to step out uh, and John Feely and Chris Watts are going to step in. And then you're going to ask them some questions about what we're invested in technology and what we're not invested in mm-hmm. and why. Great. I'll go and get John and Chris. Okay.
3: So we've got John Feely and Chris Watts here um, to discuss technology. And technology is obviously a big topic on the client's minds. And in fact, we have um, 28% of the fund also in technology holdings. Um, but what's really interesting uh, is that our technology holdings look rather different from that of the index and, and many other funds. And Chris, perhaps you could share a little bit about how they look different, why, why we have a different group of technology holdings.
4: Well... And as you know, and most of our investors will know, we, we like to try and keep things simple or as simple as we can for ourselves at, at Findlay Park. And um, and our investment philosophy steers us really towards businesses that we have a um, a strong view on, on the inevitability of the outcome and, and where we've got a good understanding of the business model, I think, that, that gets us mm. to that outcome. And we look for evidence of, of strong, sustainable cash flows. We look for evidence of high returns, and we try and avoid companies generally that are that are really quite exposed, quite susceptible to to shifts in um, in consumer preferences. So, if, if you use that as a guide and think about that, what we hold and, and what we don't hold in the fund, this really starts to make sense. Um, so, we own several of the tech mega caps. We own Amazon and Alphabet and Microsoft, but we don't own Meta, which was which was formerly Facebook. Uh, we don't own Apple. Uh, we don't own Tesla. Um, so, for example, on, on, on Meta, we have um, we have concerns about the regulatory risk. Perhaps we can we can touch on that a little later. But we also we worry about the risk of future generations of consumers. I mean, you know, you have children. I have children. Uh, we all know, you know, behaviorally what they're what they're up to on the internet, or at least we hope we do. Um, we worry about the risk of future generations of consumers finding other ways to communicate that that may not involve platforms like, like Facebook uh, and Instagram and, and similar, similar risks at Snap. And so even as, as Meta invests and expands in other areas like the Metaverse, which is, which is obviously a big buzzword at the moment, the decline of the core business there would, would present a huge problem for the company. Um, and turning to Apple, um, we've historically not invested in due, due really to the risk that, that one day consumers fall out of love with the iPhone, and the iPhone obviously is, is the pillar really, on which their, their entire ecosystem rests. So what we've done, um, we've looked for areas that overall have have lower or manageable regulatory friction, uh, and which have class-leading business models with really sort of predictable business outcomes, or, or outcomes that we feel are very predictable, um, that are not overly reliant on, on those kind of consumer shifts in behaviour. And many of them sit in the in the business productivity software area so you know in, in addition to companies everyone's going to know like microsoft we we, we own uh, businesses like intuit which uh, which provides tax and, and financial management software and perhaps john might might touch on that a little bit more later on um we we like autodesk when in the design software space uh and adobe which is a real sort of leading provider of, of content creation and um and, and digital marketing software and um we also like the, the cloud providers. There's an enormous amount of, of of secular growth in that space. We think the shift from sort of so-called on-premise um, software to, to uh, businesses processes and software that's hosted in the cloud is perhaps only only 25% of the way through, and um, there's enormously strong sort of secular demand in that area. Um, but the providers that we like also have huge scale benefits that we just don't think really can be can be you know, attacked by very many other businesses. They just lack the resources to do it. So that I think is a major factor in the funds ownership of, of businesses like Microsoft and Amazon and Alphabet, all of which have sort of class leading businesses in, the, in that area.
3: So quite a lot of uncertainty related to some of those mega cap stocks, which makes it difficult for us to invest in them. Um, John, uh, picking up on Uh, looking for certainty, Autodesk is a stock that we like. um, And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that.
5: Yes. um, Autodesk is uh, a design company that serves the architectural engineering markets. We think that over the next uh, couple of decades, you're going to see an increasing convergence between uh, construction and manufacturing. You're going to see more design and make You're going to see a construction industry that has struggled to keep up the productivity gains of most other sectors begin to emulate manufacturing in its best practices. And by serving both of those markets, Autodesk is really well placed for that convergence.
3: So, John, we we place a lot of emphasis on our investment philosophy checklist and the 29 questions Um, on Autodesk specifically. How is that a good fit with the investment philosophy checklist?
5: Within technology, we're uh, conscious that the rate of innovation um, can be an asset and a, a liability. Um, it can mean that companies get out innovated and there's obsolescence risk over time. So, what we focus on to minimise that risk is switching cost. And with Autodesk, one recurring theme you'll see in our stock picking is in technology is that the customers themselves are non-technologists. Um, they're Uh, in essence, in this case, designers. And they've been to universities where they've trained deeply in these tools and then spent many tens of thousands of hours becoming experts in these tools. And so were the IT purchasing manager to come in and suggest a trial of some low-cost upstart, they will probably be met with rebellion by the designers who realize their switching cost and uh, reduction in productivity far outweighs any saving that can be made from uh, buying lower cost software.
3: And John, a lot of software is is around the world, is pirated. But I think the amount of pirated software um, that is not paid for at Autodesk is, is extraordinarily high. Perhaps you could just talk a little bit about why that is and what the company is doing to try and uh, reduce the, the amount of pirates.
5: Yes. Um, Autodesk historically had a licensed software model where they were charged many thousands of dollars up front to um, users of the software. And uh, there was no means of monitoring um, the uh, activation of that software via the internet. Many of the tools didn't need internet connectivity to to allow users to uh, design and collaborate. That's changed uh, with the cloud. And so in the past, it was not uncommon for a rogue channel reseller to uh, tell a customer they bought legitimate software but upload um, serial keys that that weren't, in fact, compliant and from which Autodesk received no revenue. As we think about the user base today, Autodesk has 5 million uh, paying users, and they estimate that they have 15 million active pirates on their software, about 10 million of whom use the software uh, several times a month. And so we think that's the level of activity um, that Autodesk um Begin to introduce anti-piracy um, methods. That those customers will still need to use the software, um, you know, several times a month, and will need to become paying users. And Chris, just coming back to regulation, you touched on it and, and the risk associated
3: with that, but perhaps you could talk a little bit more about uh, how you see that developing and what
4: it means for maybe the stocks in the fund. Well Yes, we, it's it's something we spend an awful lot of time looking at. Um, and it, it's right up there as, as, as one of our core concerns in technology. There's, there's really not very much doubt that the, the regulatory pendulum, if you visualise it like that, is is swinging slowly, but steadily against, certainly against big tech, at least. And, and, and we can talk more about some of the names that, that, that John uh, was, was, was discussing. Um, you've got a very hawkish Federal Trade Commission. Um, you've got the DOJ now looking at, at businesses um, in, in a lot more depth. And you can see this sentiment even more prominently, I think, in a number of international jurisdictions versus within the U.S. itself. Uh, there are antitrust actions, Penny against Meta, against Alphabets near term. And I think longer term, we will see the same at Amazon and at Apple. And in the coming year, uh, we think the debate is going to heat up an awful lot on, on privacy uh, and also on the issue of, of just how much liability big tech must assume for the content that proliferates uh, across its platforms. Yes.
3: Yeah, so there's obviously a lot to consider there, Chris, but how do we navigate that in terms of uh, the portfolio that we put together?
4: Well, what we try and do firstly is to look at, at what the impact of that regulation could be. So, for example, we're not invested in, in Meta at the moment because we believe a separation of, of the Facebook and Instagram platforms could actually be very impactful for the business. Um, but at Alphabet, by contrast, while regulation of the advertising stack could be a drag on the business, we think that a breakup of the business, if, if that's the ultimate outcome, it might be unlikely, but it could be, um, perversely could be really quite a value accretive event. So, you know, as John and I discuss things like that, we, we feel the risk is um, is quite manageable. Um, and at Amazon, likewise, we think a separation of its first party and third party resale businesses would likewise be, be quite a manageable event. Um, and there's also the question, I think, of, of timing on regulation. This is really important. Um, while there is a, a broad consensus in the US that big tech is a problem, there's a lot of disagreement among policymakers on what the solution actually looks like. And, and that lack of agreements, um, I think, has, has already delayed legislative action. And we think it could continue to do so, really, for, for quite some time. So it's not enough just to say It's coming. We've got to have an educated view on when it's coming and, and what that outcome is going to be.
3: Tesla's obviously a, a company and a stock that gets a lot of attention. And it's a stock that's done very well over the years. I think it's now a $1 trillion market cap company. Could, could you share a few thoughts on Tesla,
4: why that's perhaps less a good fit
3: with the investment philosophy checklist?
4: Well, um, first and foremost, I think we have to say we have an enormous amount of, of respect for what, for what Elon Musk has achieved with Tesla and in other areas, and, and, and many of us, I, I suspect, are, are big fans of the products. But given our focus on, on managing downside risk, we find it hard to conclude that the outcome of the Tesla story is inevitable. Um, and even really a setting aside the growth that's implied by the, by the enormous valuation premium in the stock, we just don't feel that we are or, or, or can be Um, informed enough to forecast which emerging technology is going to succeed out of several very credible contenders. And and this goes back to something that John was talking about. Um, Tesla's valuation is telling you, we think, uh, that they are already dominant, that that they've won the race. And from a capital preservation perspective, which is always the first thing we think about, we have to ask, what if they haven't? Just how inevitable is that outcome? And so that is why we're not invested there. So, John, pulling it all together, we, we do look a little bit different, different
3: in, in terms of our technology holdings. Um, any sort of final thoughts on tech
5: overall and uh, our positioning? I think our philosophy leads us towards thinking about inevitable outcomes uh, that can support long-term compounding. So in technology, um, Chris has discussed how we uh, calibrate for regulatory risk. There are some companies that we uh, will avoid and uh, it certainly has bearing on uh, our weighting of certain of those stocks to account for regulatory risk even though the issues have been aired over some considerable period of time now and are likely somewhat discounted in stocks. It's something we're aware of. Um, Secondly, we're focused on the duration risk. And so... If you look at the NASDAQ, around 40% of its components lately have had no earnings. And even if you look out to 2024, many of those have an earnings yield of sub 1%. And so they're inherently long-duration assets in a sector that suffers from high obsolescence risk. And so with the high-flying companies today that are on those valuations, it's impossible to track which of their former alumni are in a garage forming the challenger to that company. And so that is why you will find this time and again, focusing on high switching cost, uh, where the customers tend not to be technologists.
3: John, Chris, thanks very much. Um, We are going to step out the three of us and I'm going to hand over to Lakala Kala, who is going to talk to Rose Beale and John Tregitt about ESG, Responsible Investing and Net Zero.
6: Hello, uh, my name is Selo Lekalakala, and I am part of the investment team at Finlay Park. I am joined here today by Rose Beal, who heads our Responsible Investing, and John Tredget, a portfolio manager on the team. We are going to be diving into some um, ESG topics. Uh, and maybe to start off with, we at Finlay Park use the Responsible Investment Gauge, or RIG as we call it. Um, I thought, Rose, could you please walk us through what is the RIG exactly?
0: Great. Thanks, Selo. Um, So yeah, it's called the RIG, the Responsible Investment Gauge, and it does just that really. It helps us gauge ESG, environmental social governance, kind of risk opportunity um, in the companies that we look at. How does it do that? So it pulls on lots of different sources of information. There are actually 19 different ones. And that's a combination of our own experience, things like how we've engaged with the firm, our impressions of that, how we've voted at a company's annual general meeting, and also external indicators around things like employee engagement or cyber risk or extent of climate commitments, etc. So a lot that goes in there. And it's designed that way. So you can both look at it as an aggregate score, but you can also pull it apart and look at the underlying components and have a look at what's changing over time. You know, a company can be great on environmental issues, but there can be a massive social risk there. So just looking at the average isn't always helpful. And with this, we can kind of pull it apart, put it back together, and also watch how things change month for month. Um, And maybe for kind of how we use it, I'll turn that over to John as our portfolio manager.
7: One of the things that we get asked by customers uh, and investors is, you know, with this ESG framework, you know, will it lead to lower returns for our portfolio over time? And the answer is no. Um, Gauging a company's performance on ESG related metrics, you know, ESG helps us identify risks and it helps us identify opportunities as well, uh, risks that could create you know, hinder returns over time and opportunities that could lead to higher returns over time. Um, we find if a company is not pursuing best in class ESG policies, whether they're environmental, social, or governments, over time that could lead them to fall afoul with some of the key stakeholders, whether that's employees, whether it's politicians or regulators, uh, which in turn could hinder their returns over time. We've seen companies like Wells Fargo, which sadly, have had controversies, which led to them effectively losing their social license to operate and led to successive years of market share losses. On the flip side, you know, one of the companies we own, Ferguson, has a excellent and longstanding track record in superb employee relations. They have a um, internal program called College at Ferguson, where they focus on hiring only the best people trying to bring those people into the organization, training them and having a a career uh, pathway for those employees. And the net result of that has been the company over time has a very motivated um, uh, workforce, excellent customer service metrics. And over time, they've taken a lot of share from customers. So it's led to superior returns uh, and outcomes for that company.
6: Leading on that, um, Rose, something that we've spent a lot of time on as a team recently is the fact that we are now an Article 8 fund under the SFDR regulation. Can you please tell our listeners what is what does that mean for us? And has there been any major changes to the portfolio or the investment process as a result?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, let's just take a moment to recognise how jargon-filled finance is, and ESG as part of finance is especially jargon-filled. Um, so what does Article 8 even mean? So it's actually the um, article in the regulation, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, that describes this type of fund. Um, kind of ridiculous that that's what we've come to call these funds. Um, but they are essentially funds with environmental, social and governance characteristics, which we thought actually just best described the Finney Park American Fund, to be honest. Um, so it was a pretty you know, simple decision. Obviously, we took a bit of time, made sure it was right for us. One thing the regulators have specified is that some elements of this need to be binding, Um, So we had a look at what we do, there's so much that we do, and by kind of policy and process, Um, we've also introduced just a few basic exclusions, which really reflected the way we were investing anyway, very much aligned with our investment philosophy. Um, and those focus on, you know, not investing in things like coal and oil sands, which have very severe environmental impacts, um, then also controversial weapons and tobacco. And looking through the last five years of how we've invested, there'd actually only be one company that would now fall foul of those exclusions. So as I said, really in line with what we're doing anyway. And to your point about kind of continuity and change, you know, there were no changes that we had to make as a result of those decisions. So it very much is about continuity and the way in which our investment philosophy had already led us.
6: One thing that's really exciting is the fact that we've recently signed up to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. I know this is something that we as a team have worked really hard on. Um, Rose, can you please just walk us through the journey of how we got here?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Net Zero Asset Managers managers initiative is very much focused on climate change and the idea is that investors would sign up to investing in a way which aligns with getting to net zero emissions by 2050 or before. This is ambitious as an economy as, and as a society. Um, we have to get our head around how to do this. Why did we want to be on board? We actually think that companies need to be part of the solution, not the problem. They need to be transitioning in a way that is um, meaningful and responsible and forward-looking. And we felt like the best companies would be starting to do this already. And increasingly over time, those companies that don't have those climate plans in place could be quite risky investments. So it really goes back to what John and I have been talking about earlier, about ESG as a lens on risk and opportunity. So our idea is to really engage with companies, to try and encourage them to set ambitious targets for themselves that are science-based, that would help get us towards that net zero economy, um, and to just push really hard on that, frankly, uh, and see where we get to. So it's an exciting journey. We're just at the start of it, but we've already had some really fruitful initial conversations with some of our companies, um, including our one investment in oil and gas, EOG, which I know we'll talk about really soon.
6: Yes, actually, great that you bring up EOG. Um, one question that our investors have been asking about a lot is how does EOG Resources as an energy company fit within our investment philosophy? Um, can you walk us through this and how we think about allocating capital to EOG? I know, John, you've obviously been involved as co-coverage on this, so we'd love to hear from you as well.
7: We believe uh, cello companies like EOG have an essential role to play in a successful energy transition from a carbon based economy to a green economy. While it would be fantastic if we could kind of swing a magic wand and be in a green powered uh, economy today, that's not where we are and this is a transition. Uh, And EOG as a low cost and also one of the lowest uh, carbon based US oil producers, we think it has a role to play. In terms of how EOG is differentiated from some of the other exploration and production companies that historically have not scored well on our investment philosophy, there's a few ways. One is historically, uh, it's had a very strong balance sheet and a conservative financial management. So it's a company that's always been self-funded. So they have never taken on huge amounts of debt to fund their business, which got a lot of peers into trouble. Also in line with their conservative financial management, it's a company that historically, did not engage in a lot of value-destroying mergers and acquisitions, which sunk a lot of the other companies in this sector. It's been very much a returns-based focused company and culture, uh, and it's been an organic growth story rather than an acquisition-driven growth story. Uh, And the final point I'd make is today, this company at about $40 per barrel oil can fund all of its operations, its maintenance capex, its growth capex, and pay us a dividend. So it's done an incredible job over time at reinvesting in its business to lower its cost structure. In terms of its role uh, playing part of the energy transition, you know the onus is on us to make sure they are playing a role there and engaging with them. And to that, I'm going to hand it off to Rose, who has a few comments in this regard.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, John. Yeah, engagement, I think, is that, is vital. In the past few years, uh, EOG has definitely made progress. They've introduced climate targets for their own operational emissions, called Scope 1 and 2 emissions, um, to be net zero by 2040 actually, a bit earlier than um, the economy needs to be. So whilst this is great news, we also want them to be thinking about other sources of emissions from their products and services or from their supply chain, Scope 3 emissions, so we're engaging with them on that. We've also seen them bring this kind of lens of technology and innovation to the problem, which has been really exciting. Uh, One of the things they've excelled at historically has been around the use of data. They've got lots of ESG data that they're monitoring and managing, which has helped them drive down their own emissions. For instance, methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. Um, we're also excited about their carbon capture and storage capabilities, which is something they're starting to talk much more about now and we expect to see more of in the future.
6: You talk about engagement several times, and I know John also mentioned management and how they run the business. One of the things I noticed when I moved to Finley Park is that uh, management quality, purpose and culture is something that receives a huge focus. Can you explain
7: to our listeners how do we assess these nebulous characteristics? Yeah, thanks, Salo. Yeah, culture is uh, an intangible asset and it's it's qualitative, you know, not quantitative. It is, by its nature, hard to define. Um, ultimately, we're assessing the quality of the people, um, the behavior and the reputation uh, of an organization. And, you know, one quote is that, you know, eventually a a company uh, or a person gets the reputation they deserve. And I think that's very much true uh, with the passage of time. But we're looking at the leadership often will set the tone uh, in the organization and they should be leading by example. How do they treat their employees and other stakeholders? How honest and transparent are they with their communications? Uh, are they doing the right thing? Um, And one of the ways we look into this is by talking to lots of people at different levels of the organization to make sure that what the senior management or the management bodies are saying is filtering down. We're hearing a consistent message as we talk to other people in the organization. Why is it important? Um, A good culture creates positive feedback loops. Uh, It impacts the level of trust within an organization and the buy-in of the employees, which in turn can motivate the employees, which in turn should lead to better Uh, customer experience and customer service Um, and we've seen that with companies like uh, we mentioned Ferguson earlier on is a great example of that in terms of some of the indicators uh, in terms of how we assess culture I'll hand it off to Rose to address that
0: yeah absolutely I love that um, kind of description of culture as inherently uh, qualitative very much true we try and get little lenses, um, kind of windows onto that that are slightly more quantitative in nature or, um, yeah, take a snapshot of something very nebulous and, and try and give you a metric that you can compare and contrast. So the Glass Door School would be an example. You know, this experience of employee engagement is quantified on a kind of one to five scale. Um, similarly, within her site, again, it comes out as a, as a rating one to five there are other things you can look at as well. For instance, um, how's a management team incentivized and what does that tell you about you know, the culture, the focus of the organization? You could look at customer retention numbers or um, net promoter scores, a measure of kind of customer satisfaction. Even things like health and safety metrics for some businesses I think are really good indicators. And actually an example that I had um, where that was very pertinent is Waste Connections. So it's a waste management company Um, And it's actually one of our best scoring companies on Glassdoor, this employee engagement site, which you might not think a waste management company would come out really well there, but it does. Um, And they also have best in class health and safety metrics. This was really about their culture and it was very intentional and distinctive. So a few years ago, they decided to adopt a different model of culture um, called servant leadership, which is essentially the opposite of a top down culture, very much bottom up, kind of listening to employees, trying to help them problem solve, etc. They trialled it initially in some regions and actually found it so successful in terms of improving health and safety, um, reducing employee churn and actually creating better returns that they rolled it out across the entire organisation. Um, we spent a day with them a few years ago just talking about culture and to John's point about different levels of the organization. We had uh, insights from regional managers, uh, kind of regular employees, senior management and very much this consistent message of how servant leadership really helped drive better performance and alignment within that organization.
6: Well, thanks Rose. I One of the things that amazes me is how much resource um, we spend in digging deep and trying to really understand these uh, qualitative elements, as you've just outlined, uh, which begs the question, um, how would you say our philosophy and interrogation of culture, purpose, management, quality is differentiated? Because I just feel like nowadays every company is talking about these intangibles. So how are we differentiated at Findlay Park?
0: Yeah, absolutely. ESG is a great buzzword at the moment, everyone's throwing it around. But I genuinely think that if you look at our investment philosophy, which is focused on um, less risk, it does look at these qualitative issues, um, there's a huge alignment there inherently. You know, everything we've talked about today has just built on and flowed from our investment philosophy in the historic way in which we've always invested. Um, And it's just a kind of incremental um, improvement and the evolution of that as we improve and learn as an organization. Um, So it's very natural, really. And then the second thing is the people. We've got a great team here. We're very well resourced. And that enables us to have an amazing focus on just a few companies going into a lot of detail. And again, looking at these qualitative issues, not just the numbers that you have to stick into a model today to move on to another company tomorrow. And also back to culture, frankly, and leadership, you know, these are, uh, we're a group of people that are really motivated um, to think about these issues carefully, um, and we're all just so on board um, with with ESG and the real uh, value add we think it can bring to our process.
6: Thanks, Rose. Thanks, John. This is obviously a very exciting topic area and we could spend hours talking about it. But in the interest of time, we have to move on. Uh, but I, as a member of the investment team, I am really excited about what we are doing at Finlay Park uh, in responsible investing.
0: Thanks, Ella. So Great. Thanks so much.
6: Okay, then. Next up, we've got Simon coming back in to talk to John Feely and Caroline Ada thompson on distributors and inflation in the U.S.
2: So, Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, tell me, when you joined Finney Park, did you ever imagine you get so excited about plumbing and paint companies?
1: <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Uh, not sure that I did, but there's lots actually to be excited about. Uh, no surprise that Americans are spending more time than ever at home since the pandemic, at first, obviously, during the initial shutdowns, but as flexible working becomes the new normal for many, we're really seeing that increased importance being placed on the home. It's seeing more wear and tear. And I'd say that Americans are really re-evaluating their housing needs, as I think also it would be the case for you and I.
2: That's right, Caroline. I think you know, obviously all of us are adapting to flexible working uh, and the implications it has for the home. Now, we've identified a small group of companies that we've given this name distributors to. Uh, John, perhaps you can explain to us what what a distributor means.
5: In the area of building products, a distributor um, is really the middleman between a number of uh, manufacturers of products and many millions of of tradesmen and women who um, are in homes every day fixing or, or building new features. And... They essentially provide a breadth and selection of products uh that is close to uh the customer job site and will be shopped primarily by the tradespeople themselves who are under some time pressure uh because they will turn up do a diagnosis of what needs doing in the home run away to fetch the materials and then try and finish the job quite quickly so um Service culture is really important within distributors. And uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, this is a, it's a you know, somewhat of a fragmented industry. But those companies with the best service cultures tend to become dominant over time and are able to uh, up, you know, take market share, open new branches and acquire smaller competitors.
2: And Caroline, I see some of the companies that we've been invested here are involved in insulation. Uh, Building insulation is something else we've all learned a lot about over the past 18 months. Um, It doesn't sound as exciting as software. Now, why is it as exciting?
1: Yeah, well, insulation is um, a sort of high value, low cost input. What do we mean by that? Well, it's one to two percent of the build cost of a new home, but it's critical in terms of not holding up the whole construction process. It's difficult to handle and install, so it requires a specialist rather than a general contractor. Uh, and you know, building codes are mandating ever greater quantities of insulation, so it's becoming increasingly important, you know, as a means of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, we invest in both Top Build and uh, IBP. They're the two largest insulation distributors in the U.S. Top Build alone has a forty percent share of the new home construction market, and with that kind of scale, they typically buy fiberglass insulation some twenty percent cheaper than their smaller peers. Uh, John mentioned you know, acquiring uh, other companies with less scale. That certainly happens here, often uh, only four to five times free cash flow once the synergies are taken into account. That's the likes of improved economies of scale and better root densities. Uh, so, you know, we think these companies play an increasingly important role as the US looks to fill the gap between sort of supply and demand for new homes and to do that in an increasingly sustainable manner.
2: So, John, perhaps let's talk a bit more about why we think plumbing is interesting, and in particular, Ferguson, the plumbing business that we're invested in, in the fund.
5: The fund is a holding in Ferguson, which is the leading distributor of plumbing and waterworks uh, supplies in the US. Historically, the business uh, operated in many geographies, and um, it has spun off and divested uh, those operations such that now, of its operating profit comes from the US. And in its current state, we think that Ferguson uh, resembles closely several of the dominant distributors that we own the portfolio, such as Pool Corp, Home Depot, and Sherwin-Williams. Those stocks have been some of the best value creators in the US market over the last 15 years. And we think that Ferguson's value creation recipe going forward of consistently taking market share, Uh, growing with home starts and commercial uh, construction and uh, having positive pricing from new products, many of which are focused on energy efficiency and water conservation, is a steady um, foundation for further compounding. A second element is that because of Ferguson's legacy um, as a multinational, they were listed in London. And usually compared to Travis Perkins, which is a much lower growth, lower return invested capital entity, which has somewhat held back Ferguson's valuation. The company will um, hold a vote to relist and have its primary listing um, in the US in 2022. And that brings about the opportunity for comparison to companies like Home Depot, Core & Main and Watsco, which operate in similar areas but have a significantly higher valuation than Ferguson, leaving the opportunity for some valuation upside.
2: Okay, so Caroline, a lot of our investors have asked us about inflation recently. We've obviously seen inflation tick up quite markedly in America over the past few months. How do these distributive businesses sort of sort of fit into a more inflationary environment in the US, if indeed that's what we see continue to emerge?
1: Right, Simon. And obviously, we don't know what we're going to see going forwards. But these businesses, uh, were they to see you know, increased inflation going forwards, uh, would benefit from that. Uh, distributors typically uh, pass on the p- increases that they see in the cost of their products to their customers. And that uh, means that they generate higher revenues which leverages their fixed costs leading to margin expansion. so were you know any of those businesses that John's just mentioned to see greater cost increases going forwards we're pretty confident that they would see even greater increases in their free cash flow generation
2: thanks Gary. John press there's some examples that that we could we could talk about that would illustrate that sort of inflation proofing point
5: yes with um with Pool Corp, the uh, leading distributor of, of, of pool supplies, um, we are seeing um, regulatory uh, mandates that they have to move to energy-efficient pool filters. And those are about twice the price of the predecessor that they replace. Um, in insulation, the industry um, is composed of four manufacturers. They earn low return invested capital and been, have been leery to expand all that much um, over the last uh, decade. Um, And most of their spare capacity has been eaten up by environmental mandates, which require more insulation per home. Um, So with that, they are raising price to um, justify the addition of new capacity. So in insulation, we've been seeing list prices um, go up in the order of 10% this year. And um, that has benefited uh, top build because they're able to pass that through to their customers, and as Caroline said, leverage their fixed costs and expand their operating profits at an even faster rate.
2: Thanks, John. So Caroline, having talked about paint at the beginning, I think we should probably end on paint. Uh, Tell us a bit more about Sherwin-Williams and why paint gets us excited.
1: Yeah, thanks, Simon. So Sherwin-Williams is the largest paint company in the US, and it shares many of these attributes we've just talked about. So they have by far and away the largest network of paint stores. That's really important to these paint contractors uh, who often will need to pick up paint on the way to their job, or if if the paint contractor prefers, Sherwin will deliver to their job site. Um, they have a really customer-focused culture where every decision they make is about increasing the productivity of the customer and that's particularly important because labour is the vast majority of the costs of a paint job and so if your paint which is say 10% of the cost of the total job makes the labour more efficient then there's overall savings and that makes that paint that bit more valuable to the customer. That's one reason why Sherwin can pass through uh, the costs of goods increase that they see and generate greater cash flow going forwards in an inflationary environment.
2: Great, thanks Caroline. Well hopefully that's given everyone some idea why we've got about 12% of the portfolio invested in these distributor companies at the moment. Uh, Thank you John and Caroline. I'm now going to be joined again by Anthony. Welcome back, Anthony. So we've heard about quite a few different interesting businesses that we are invested in the portfolio. Uh, We've just been talking about distributors. And I suppose this leads a bit to one of the things we've talked about why we love investing in America. the great advantage American companies have, they've got uh, a, a country with 350 million people in to expand in, sell their services, sell their products.
3: That's right. I mean, there's just so many extraordinary companies in America across such a, a wide range of sectors, from healthcare to technology, uh, software, industrials, and we, through our diversified portfolio, are able to identify uh, and find these great little companies and distributors, as you've heard today. It's just another fantastic example of that. It may not be something that that you know, is the first thing that pops into investors' head. But actually, uh, we find these companies fascinating. And because of the scale of America and the size of the country and being able to scale those businesses across such a large population, um, these companies can actually become quite sizable.
2: And we've talked a lot about regulation as well, particularly relating to the large tech companies. Um, so this is the point where you roll your eyes and indulge me as I talk sure. a bit about history. Uh An article I read recently reminded me about what happened to Standard Oil 100 years ago. And so in 1911, Standard Oil dominated 90% market share um, uh, of the American kind of oil sector, and then suddenly got served with antitrust and was broken up into 35 different companies. So big businesses don't necessarily last forever. Uh, and we obviously spend a lot of time thinking about how we manage that kind of uncertainty with how we invest in the tech sector.
3: That's right. And I think, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about the the regulatory risk of the companies that we do own and and, and thinking that's manageable. But of course, on the technology companies that um, that we own uh, that don't have that regulatory risk, so Autodesk, Adobe, Intuit, there are a number of others that we just think don't face that same kind of regulatory risk. And so we think overall, we're probably less exposed to regulatory risk than than the overall market in those big tech stocks.
2: Sir Anthony, quite a few of our investors have asked us about what we think about inflation over the last few months. Uh, We always initially answer by saying we can't predict macroeconomic futures, Um, but then we talk about the kind of stocks we're invested in and how we think those companies are going to weather inflation. That's right. And one of the most
3: important questions on our philosophy checklist is pricing power. Does the company have pricing power and why? And when you have pricing power, um, if you don't know what's gonna happen to inflation, whether you have an inflation environment or not, you have a business which ultimately can raise prices to offset those cost pressures, be they wage pressures, um, supply chain pressures, Um, And so uh, we feel good right across the board that we've got a diversified portfolio of a group of companies with strong pricing power um, and distributors are a great example of that. You've heard um, why we like distributors. Um, They are able to raise prices, pass those on to customers, leverage their fixed costs and actually make more money as a result of uh, inflation
2: than um, in in a sort of more of a benign environment we've talked about a diversified portfolio, we're sort of finding new ideas really at the top end and and the bottom end of the stock market at the moment.
3: Yeah, I think that's really exciting that we are finding some of these, particularly in the consumer area, uh, the the housing related area, some of these distributors, many of them are in the sort of sub sub $25 billion market cap area. And uh, in spite of that, they're still market leaders in what they do. Many of them have leading market shares. They just happen to be um, slightly at the smaller scale of the market capitalization.
2: And then perhaps to end on another kind of hot investor topic, we obviously get asked a lot about ESG, our attitude to net zero. Rose and Sello and John have spoken about that a bit earlier. Um, one of the questions we get asked by investors is, putting this ESG into your process, is that going to inhibit returns in some way going forward? We, we don't think so. Uh,
3: in fact, we think it's uh, an opportunity to... Um, better identify a risk uh, on the on the downside um, but at the same time uh, identify opportunity on the upside so particularly with some of the distributors that we bought recently we think they're potentially beneficiaries of esg um, but by having a strong focus on esg uh, we can also uh, identify and manage risk better
2: 2022 how are we feeling nervous excited confident you
3: know I've, i've uh been investing in America here for 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 a number of years and uh, the, the common the commentary often is oh, America looks expensive um, the market's overvalued but I think people underestimate the power of America the American system America works and uh, we see that you know frankly, um, very good growth prospects for, for many of the companies in the portfolio. The business is going well, business is doing well, uh, and these companies are growing and uh, taking market share in many instances. And uh, we feel pretty good about the prospects for America.
2: Well, we should probably wrap up at that point. We've covered a lot of topics today. Uh, hopefully, we've addressed a few questions that, that you, our investors, have asked us over the last few months. Absolutely. And it's been fun,
3: Simon. And uh, hopefully uh, our investors will uh, give us some feedback, positive, negative. Um, We're always looking to learn and improve. It's one of our mantras at Finlay Park.
2: And so uh, obviously look forward to doing this again uh, next quarter. Uh, Any ideas or topics you'd like us to cover next time, uh, please do let us know. Thank you for listening. Thank
3: you.